Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law, then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through agents by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which is able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to promise. May God bless the reading of his word. It's great to have Brian and and Jen back, isn't it? And that was a great testimony. Thank you all for coming and sharing. As we come to this study of God's word today in Galatians, I want to make uh, make note of one of the first things that he says in verse 15, which I find very interesting. He begins with a human illustration and he says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. So he's going to talk about something spiritual. He's going to talk about a spiritual promise. But he's setting it up by talking about a man's covenant. And he says, even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, a covenant is a legal thing. You've got two parties, one on this side, one on that side, and they agree to enter into a relationship And there are conditions to the covenant and the covenant that many of us uh, enter into uh, is the covenant of a lease agreement. Often when you rent a house or something like that. So I remember when we moved to Taiwan, we had the experience of realizing that in the east covenants and leases and even job uh, covenants and and those type of um, legal documents are a little bit different from what you have in the West. In the West, we can say absolutely certainly that when you have like a lease, when you have uh, a job contract or something, once it has been ratified, no one can change it. Well, here's what happened to us. 
we had this great apartment in Taipei, and it was on like the 14th floor of a building that was very centrally located. We loved our apartment. The only problem with our apartment was when our cat decided it was going to open up the window with the 14th floor when we were out and commit suicide. Um, but but besides that, we, we loved the apartment and we wanted to stay there. So when the terms of our lease were were up, we were negotiating with our landlord. <clears throat> so we agreed. We agreed on what the price was going to be for the next rental period, 60 days, just as the lease agreement said. And we agreed on the price. So 60 days later, when I'm still in Ty- Taiwan, Evie and the kids are back in the U.S. for the summer because of this problem called SARS that happened. So I was there and they were back and they were coming back. But the time of re-ratifying the lease and re-signing the lease was left to me only. Our landlord comes, <clears throat> we sit down, and I look at the terms of the lease. And he said, oh, I, I made a change to it. And I'm like, what's the change? And he said, I added a thousand NT to the rent. $30 a month. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not going to sign it. And he's like, it's, it's only a thousand NT per month. It's only 30 US dollars per month. Go ahead and sign it. And I said, no. I said, I cannot enter into a relationship with someone who would do that. And so I walked away from the lease. Evie gets off the plane the next day with the kids. And I said, we're moving. And she's like, oh, my gosh. For, for the sake of 30 U.S. dollars um, times 12 over the course of a year. It wasn't about the money. It was about the principle. And so Paul takes that and starts talking about what happened with Abraham and what happened in the Old Testament and how that relates to the promises of, of God so that we can realize some things about <clears throat> what's going on. Now, here's what I want you to see. He talks about the promise that was spoken to Abraham in verse 16. And he says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now, seed, um, seed is one of those words that can be singular or plural, like there is a seed that I just dropped or are we going to take the seed and then we're going to seed the uh, the field. So seed is something that can be singular or plural. But Paul says now the promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, he does not say and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Now, this is a very, very important thing for you. You to understand if you want to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you want to stand, understand the Old Testament, if you want to understand how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, you have to understand the point that he's making. This is not the first time this word seed in the singular has appeared. In fact, it appeared for the first time in a promise in Genesis three verses 14 and 15. I forgot my Bible. I'm using my cell phone. So forgive me. I'm not checking my email. Um, <clears throat> I want to read you the first time this promise comes up where the word seed is mentioned. You might remember what happened. Genesis chapter three, the Satan tempts Adam and Eve to sin. And then Adam's, well, Eve gives him the, the apple he eats. Um, then God comes and God's dealing with them. And God begins to speak to each of them about what they have done. <coughs> and then. In verse 14, the Lord God turns to the serpent who tempted them to begin with. And he says something very interesting. He says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust 
shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. Who's the he? The seed. Singular. The seed of the woman. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's the first promise that was given. That promise is then picked up in the promise that God gives to Abraham. And then Paul tells us that it leads us straight to Christ. But what is the promise that the seed will do? Well, when the seed promise appears the first time, it's that the seed of the woman who becomes the seed of Abraham, who Paul says is Christ in Galatians chapter three, he shall crush the serpent's head. This is what the Bible says in first John three, eight. And the son of God has appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, when this promise works itself out and we get to Paul's letter to Romans, we find something interesting. First, the promise is given to the seed of the woman. And then we find that the promise is given to Abraham as it pictures Christ. But then what happens in Romans 16, 20? Paul says this. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan. There's the promise all the way back to Genesis 3:15. Shall crush Satan under your feet. What is the gospel promise? It's that all that Satan has done to bring us into a world of misery, sin, death will be crushed by the son of God. Now, I'm bringing this to your attention for a very important reason. We live in a material world. Most of what we do has to do with material things. But the world, according to Scripture, and salvation, according to Scripture, and the Christian life, according to Scripture, is an engagement with the spiritual realm that you don't see. That's why I just wrote a book on this, Engaging the Spirits, Traditional Chinese versus Christian Encounters with the Unseen Realm, because I feel like Christians fall into, like C.S. Lewis talks about this in, in uh, the Screwtape Letters, Christians fall into one of two different categories with regards to this spiritual world. C.S. Lewis says at the beginning of the screw tape letters, there are two equal and opposite errors unto which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and, uh, and unhealthy interest in them. <clears throat> two perspectives. Where are you today? Do you think there's no Satan out there and you've been living your life spiritually asleep? Or are you a person who sees a demon under everything? That's what Lewis is saying. But this promise wakes us up to the fact that all that it means to be a Christian Christian involves what it means to be part of the promise of the seed of the woman of the seed of Abraham that came in to crush. And to destroy the works of the devil. Are you aware of that? This is how the Bible helps us deal with this whole idea of of spiritual warfare and the fact that even now, as believers, it is we who are crushing Satan under our feet because we are in Christ and we participate in the promise. Satan comes in Ephesians chapter six, verse 10, and we're told to stand firm in the full armor of God because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The first problem in spiritual warfare is, is it Satan convinces people that your problem and your enemy is another person who you can see. That's not true. Your enemy, they might count you as 
is their enemy. But our enemy is never a human being, even if they're persecuting us. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if you think that a person that you see who's maybe done a sinful thing against you is your enemy, then you're part of the spiritual warfare and part of the spiritual blindness. You have to crush Satan under your feet by seeing where the problem lies, realizing that the weapons of our warfare are not earthly and carnal. They are spiritual. And through prayer, we deal with the work of the unseen forces that are bringing chaos into relationships today. And as you go through the New Testament, you'll see the work of Satan, the work of Satan, the work of Satan that Jesus came to crush through our spirituality, the work of Satan of unforgiveness that Paul talks about in Second Corinthians. And then he says, we're not unaware of Satan's strategies, the work of unrepentant anger. The Bible says in Ephesians four, be angry and yet do not sin. In other words, deal with it. We're human beings. We get angry. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. In Ephesians 4, we see that when you don't keep short accounts with people that you're angry with and you don't deal with your anger, that it becomes an opportunity for Satan to cause a disruption in the relationship. That's one of the reasons why marriages go kaputs. It's because Satan gets a root of bitterness in someone's heart because they haven't on a quick basis, on a day to day, day to day basis before the sun goes down, solved their anger problems. Have you fallen into that, brothers and sisters? If you have, you need to wake up spiritually and realize that to be in this promise, to be part of the seed of Abraham because you're in Christ and because Christ is in you, then right now you participate in the deeds of crushing Satan as you realize what he's doing and stand in spiritual authority against that. That's the first thing that Paul says in this passage. The second that he says is very interesting. He says that the law shuts up everyone so that they might believe in Christ. Verse 17, he starts talking about the law. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 400 years, 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. God made a covenant with Abraham according to the promise. It can't be changed. So the law comes in. The law doesn't change the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So what's going on here? Well, Paul's telling us, what the law can do and why we have a law. Why do we have a law? Why was the law given to Abraham? It's given for this purpose. To restrain sin. That's one of the things that the law does. The law cannot save you and it can't renew your heart, but it certainly can focus you towards actions that if you don't do, you're going to be punished for. Now, The law is there to restrain our sinful desires. And for so many people, that's what their Christianity is. It's the law. And you're raised maybe in a home where your parents bring you Christian morality. They bring you the law. You hear it is the law, the law, the law. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then you graduate from high school. And then you graduate from college. And then, like so many people, they walk away from the church because what they heard was not the gospel of Jesus Christ. What they heard was the law, the law, the law, the law, the law. And the only thing that that the law can do is is 
make us a little bit better so that we don't get punished. And that's Christianity for many people. But that's not Christianity, according to Paul, and it's not Christianity, and it's not even the way that the law was supposed to work on our lives. Paul tells us the law was absolutely powerless to save us. Now, notice he says two times in this passage something that I don't know about you, but if I said this or if I say this now, I'll get in a lot of trouble. Um, what there's a phrase that Paul uses two times in this um, in this section that is very interesting. He says, why the why the law then it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been made, would have been based upon law. Verse 22. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Well, this phrase shut up, he uses it here. He says it in verse 23. He's going to say it again. He says it once in Romans three times in Paul's letters. He says something that my parents wouldn't let me to say, say to someone else, shut up. Um, and I'm sure that many of you don't say shut up very, very often uh, either. Um, so what is the first thing that Paul says has happened connected to this phrase shut up? Well, the scripture has shut up all men, all people. Under sin, under sin. What does that mean? Shut up so that we're under sin. It means that we're sinners. It's a reality. People are not good. We do have some good in us because we're made in God's image, but we're not good in the way that Jesus was. We're not good in the way that God expects. And so the law comes in to shut us all up to say, guess what? You sinned. You are a sinful person. And so Paul says the law shuts us up and shows us that we're sinners. But notice what he says in verse 23 when the phrase happens a second time. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. OK, so shut up because there's something else that's coming. OK, shut up when you got the law, because later the faith is going to come that's going to be revealed. Well, I have an illustration that comes from my international school teaching time in, in Indonesia. <clears throat> I was in this concert and Evie was conducting it and I was sitting in the back of the auditorium and there was a, there was a family sitting behind me and there was a kid and I'm not talking about babies. Babies cry, you can't control that. If people have a problem with that, well, you shouldn't because babies cry, that's okay. But when the kid's six or seven years old, and it's a school program where these kids have worked for a long time to be able to put on that program. And then you have some spoiled brat, six or seven year old, that's just going, Aah! you know, well, I listened to it for about one minute. And then I listened to it for the second minute. And then I said, I, I just can't do this. I cannot sit here without saying anything. So I turned around to the mom and guess what I said? Shut up. Shut the kid up. And I said, if you can't get the kid to shut up, then take the kid out. Why? Because there was a performance that was happening. 
And I told her to stop. And I got into all kinds of trouble after that. And I won't even get into that right now. Um, but there was a show. One group had finished. The next group was coming on. There was a show that was coming on. And I wanted the people to be able to hear it. And the only way they could hear it was by closing their mouth and getting that kid out of the auditorium. Can I have an amen? Okay. Amen. Um, now, what does Paul say? Paul says that there's a show and it's the greatest show on earth. It's a show that's better than having Hugh Jackman and Zac Efron um, at the same time. There is a show. And what is the show? It's the show about what will happen when God fulfills the promise and the seed of the woman, which will crush the serpent's head, becomes, becomes the one who in the fullness of times, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law, that they might receive their adoption as sons. The point where faith comes. And so the law looks to us and says, shut up, you're sinful. But because the promise of faith has come, we were shut up to the point until now, faith, the big event, the greatest show on earth, the greatest thing that's ever happened, has happened. The promise has been fulfilled. The seed was born and he is our savior. And brothers and sisters, the entire Old Testament, the law points us. The promises welcome us. It's all about Jesus. And that's the amazing thing that Paul brings to our minds in this passage. So then he goes on and he talks about the law (coughs) a little bit. Again, he says the law is your tutor. To lead you to Christ that you might be justified by faith. He says that in verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Now, if there's one illustration I could possibly give in this particular auditorium to this particular group of people, it would be an illustration about a tutor. How many of you endured going to Chinese school and had a Chinese um, tutor to learn Mandarin? Raise your hand. Can, can I see your hands? Okay, several of you. Okay, but even if you didn't go to Chinese school on Saturday or Sunday to give up your weekend to do something that you really didn't want to do, even if you didn't go through that, you might have had a tutor for a different purpose. So what does a tutor do? It shows you the tutor shows you what you have to learn. What you have to do. So Paul tells us here that the law has become our tutor to do what? To lead us to Christ. What does the law do? It grabs you by your hand. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. The law grabs you by the hand. It captures your heart. And then it takes you on a journey to be able to see and to say four things. Number one, I am a sinner. Is that where you're at today at the first step of the process? That's what the law of God is supposed to do. Step number two. I need a savior. Has the law led you not only to see that you're a sinner, but see that that creates a situation where you need to be saved. That then leads you by the law to the third statement, which is Christ is the Savior. He's the answer to the promise that was given. Back to Adam and Eve, back to Abraham and to us as his descendants. And then the fourth thing is not only. I'm a sinner. Not only I need a savior, not only Jesus is my savior, but the fourth step. What does the law do? It leads us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. 
The only thing the law can do is point you to Jesus, who is our savior. And then you get to that fourth point and you take all that you have and all that you are. And you say, rotten me, despicable me, holy and righteous and amazing and loving you. Jesus, here I am. I'm a mess. Thank you. You've taken me. Is that where you're at today, brothers and sisters? You see yourself as a sinner, a mess, but yet you've taken yourself because the law has led you. It can't save you. It can only lead you. It's taken you to Jesus. And now you're so fully trusting in him that even when other people try and condemn you with sins that you've committed in your past, you refuse to listen to them. Even when your conscience condemns you now and says, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you say, nope. I'm justified in Christ. See, that's what Paul says. The whole purpose of the law is and was. And that's what the law does. And notice he says something else in the fourth point of my sermon. As we go on in verse 26, he tells us what happened when we came to Christ. What happened to you when you became a Christian? Paul says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that's the first thing he says. What happened when you believed? You all became sons. This is not spiritual transgender where those of you who are sisters who believe in Jesus had to become male in order to become a real Christian. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying you have all the full rights of adoption that the firstborn male children had back in the Roman era. And so when you become a Christian, you get it all, all the blessings, everything. So what happens when you believe? You are washed and you are clothed. Verse 27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. I loved Brian's sharing today, and I can so relate to what he's done. I've led more people to Christ start naked in China than I have in clothes on in America. Okay, I've been there. I've done that. I know exactly what he's talking about. But here's what Jesus did. He baptized you. He washed you. He took your sins. I'm going to connect with Brian's illustration. The first time I went to Japan, uh, I stayed in my friend Mr. Yamamoto's household. Uh, and, and as I went from my one friend's house to stay with my new friend, Mr. Yamamoto, who I had met when he was studying English in the U.S., he was a fireman in Yokaichi. I got myself ready. I wore nice clothes. I put on new clothes. And I had taken a shower before I went to Mr. Yamamoto's house. I walked to Mr. Yamamoto's house. He opens up the, the, the door and he says, hello, Mr. Conkling. And he said, take a bath. And I'm like, I, I, I took a shower. I took, I, I took a shower. He's like, no, take a bath. And I'm like, why is he telling me to take a bath? Well, the reason is, is because he had prepared a nice hot tub for me and he wanted me to be the first person in, in the household that night to soak in the nice water. He wanted me to take a bath. And I'm like, but I had a shower. And he's like, no, you need to take a bath. But then he said, you need to take a shower before you take a bath because you don't want to, you don't want to mess up the water. Okay, so I was fully washed by the time the evening what was over, I guarantee you. Well, brothers and sisters, you've tried to clean up some things in your life on your own. And even some things... You've changed a little bit, but what you need is a bath, a real bath, not a Japanese bath, 
a Jesus bath. You've got to come under the waters of baptism. You've got to be joined with him and all that he's done. And that's what Paul says. And not only that, he says you've got to be clothed. You've got to have the righteousness of Christ. Because if you get up out of the bath water, what are you? You're naked. You're not fit to stand in anybody's presence. All of my greatest nightmares have to do with being back in junior high school or senior high school. And I'm going to school naked. Okay? Well, the Bible says when you face your sins in front of other people who see your faults and your weaknesses, you don't have to stand naked because you've had the bath. You've had the clothes. Christ's righteousness clothes you and you stand before God and others completely forgiven. And that's what the gospel is. And notice the last thing that he says. What happens when we become Christians and we're brought into the church? We find that though we are different, yet we are one in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there were still Jews. There were still Greeks. What does he mean? He's saying that all the natural distinctions that used to keep some people out and turn some people into second class citizens don't exist in the church. We're all one. And the most important principle we can ever realize is to be joined with Jesus in baptism means that we're joined to the body of Christ where our differences should not separate us. The diversity that we have should reflect the spirit's work in our lives so that we can also see the unity in Christ that we have together that shows the world one thing. The love we have, the unity that we have, shows the world that the Father sent the Son into the world. Have you been led by the law of God to that point of faith in Christ, complete trust, so that you've taken this step, you believed in Christ, you've gone through the waters of baptism, you've been clothed with Christ's righteousness, you're now in the church, and you realize that your job is to reflect the unity of Christ, the unity of the body, and the love that God sent when he gave the Son into the world to a lost and a needy and a broken world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. An amazing promise that began on the day when sin entered into this world that continued through the time of the Old Testament, through the time of the law, through the time where Abraham saw the promise by faith and Mary held the promise in her hand at birth. And Lord, by faith, as we look to Christ today and experience all the forgiveness, all the cleansing all the clothing that we need to stand firm in spite of our own sin and the work of the devil and the condemnation that comes to us in this sinful world, in spite of all that, help us stand firm because we're in Christ. He loves us and we love him and he's our savior. God, help every person who's come into this room today not leave this room until they've been washed and clothed with the one who you sent into the world to transform us from the inside out. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.